question for everyone. And so you don't want to miss the question. It might be the test. And the question is, is, uh, what? Oh, it's 73 in here. So it, what's the, the temperature of the room, does it work for people? Is it too hot, too cold? Just right. So you might have to take off your shirt. <laughs> the, um, so that uh, kind of segues into the topic, which is uh, pastoral care, chaplaincy, within a Buddhist community itself. Uh, yes? Oh, okay. Yes, perfect. Okay, the group agreements. Try on new processes, ideas, perspectives before automatically rejecting them because they are different than your experience. Be willing to step out of your comfort zone. It's okay to disagree. Disagreement is a necessary part of accepting differences. It is not okay to attach or blame self or others. This can happen on a verbal or nonverbal level. Practice self-focus. Use I statements. Pay attention to what you're feeling and thinking. Ask questions of self and other. Instead of jumping to conclusions, check out your assumptions. Notes. Oh, I'll read that last. Practice both and thinking and speaking. There are multiple realities of each person present. The notion of either or, right, wrong, good, bad, is not helpful in human relationships. It sets up a hierarchy of values. 100% responsibility. You know more than anyone what you need. Let go of all other things you need to be doing and be present in this process. Participation looks different for everyone. Be aware of how you learn and process information. Intent versus impact. There is a difference between what we intend and what the impact is on another. It is important to accept when the impact is negative and seek to understand why without jumping to an explanation or apology. Assume benevolence of intent. Maintain confidentiality. Anything said of a personal nature cannot be shared without the person's permission. If you want to talk to someone about what they said, ask permission. They can say yes, no, or maybe later. Move up, move back. Be aware of how much you're speaking. If you feel you're speaking a lot, let others speak. Ask yourself, wait, why am I talking? If you find yourself not talking, try to contribute some thoughts. Notes. Giving advice is the vampire of spiritual care. Um, and you can, use, you can choose to use I prefer no feedback as code. Thank you. So there were, I think, four of you who uh, arrived after the beginning. And um, so that the overarching topic is the parami of metta, loving-kindness, goodwill, kindness, friendliness. And, um, <clears throat> and, uh, uh, and so we discussed that some in the morning part and had some discussions around that. And now we're uh, going to talk about pastoral care in a sangha itself. And uh, part of the connection between these two is that um, something I evoked at the morning is the idea that um, our connection as a community, as a sangha, is a sacred thing. I use the word sacred because it uh, touches some of the more prof- mo- can touch some of the most profound things that um, live in a person's heart. And in fact, I think some people come, knowingly or unknowingly, to do some kind of spiritual practice like Buddhism um, because they're trying to they're ad- address or express or relate to or resonate with something that is. Uh, the deepest, most important parts of their lives. And, um, and so uh, when people come into a community like this, Buddhist community, they bring with them a lot of different uh, uh, aspects or qualities of this deep heart that we have or the depth of who we are, the fullness of who we are. 
And they would like oftentimes to have their Buddhism, their religious life, spiritual life, somehow address the different parts of their being and the fullness of who they are, these depths of who they are. Uh, as a, uh, and some of them, they don't even know what they are. And so uh, how does a Buddhist community, how does a Buddhist teacher, how does a chaplain in a Buddhist community, uh, uh, how, does, uh, how do we meet the pastoral needs of a community? And I think it's instructive to, to see the insight meditation movement that IMC is part of and see how it's changed over the decades it's been here. It's been here now, probably the f- kind of, you know, it's been here maybe almost 50 years now. I don't know exactly when we're going to say it formally started, but uh, maybe formally started with the founding of IMS in Massachusetts in 1976. And, um, and it was a clearly a retreat tradition, or a retreat movement. Uh, doing meditation retreats was kind of the be-all and end-all. That's what they had to offer. That was a specialty. That's what the teachers had, some of the teachers had learned in Asia. They came and that this is the important thing to offer and what they could offer. They were trained to do retreat teaching. And so they started retreats, uh, a, a residential retreat center. They taught retreats around the country. And, um, and, um, and that was the beginning and end of it. And people would come and be on retreat and some people were great yogis and then they would go back to their regular life and fall apart. And the only thing that they knew what to do was to go back on retreat. And that was a real bifurc- bifurcated life for some people. And, um, and then at some point in the 1980s, that was 1970s and early 80s, and by the mid-1980s and later, there started to become a sense that there was much more to uh, practice and to a spiritual life or a full practice life than just sitting on retreat. And then slowly the, this insight movement began re- reinventing the wheel in a sense that the most religions know, already understand well or most churches understand well that uh, a congregation has a wide range of needs and, uh, and want a wide range of aspects of their life they want to include in, in, and be looked at and taken care of and met with and so uh, there started to be, you know, sitting groups, weekly sitting groups and teachings for people in, in daily life. Centers started to be uh, formed, and not that many, but there's a few now around the country, like I, IMC is one of them. And, uh, and then as it started to be centers, it started to be a kind of a, people would speak up and say, well, what about this, what about that? And, you know, people would die. So what about a memorial service? And uh, people wanted to be married. What about doing a wedding? At Spirit Rock, where <clears throat> it's a way out there in Marin County, there was, uh, uh, I think, meaningful teachings offered about the importance of Sangha and community that were offered. And then people thought that they could move to Woodacre, the town where the Spirit Rock is at, and join the community. But it turned out there was no community to be joined because they, the, 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 the the emphasis was there, but there wasn't any uh, creation of that community uh, at Spirit Rock itself, or very little of it. And uh, some people, felt, you know, some people would call up Spirit Rock and say, "I've been coming there for 20 years, listening to Jack on Monday night, and now I'm dying. Will someone visit me?" And there was no one. There, there wasn't. It wasn't set up for that. There was, you know, and no one knew the person. They didn't. They just were sitting in the back, and so there wasn't set up. It was kind of awkward. Or as people said, I've been coming for a long time and I want to do, get married. Well, no, no one does weddings here. And so, you know, there was no one set up. So they tried some years ago to say, they did one round of training some people to be, I think it's called ritual guides. And uh, who could do, uh, and so uh, some were trained in order to do weddings and things like that. And, but uh, didn't go very far. I mean, there are some people who kind of went off and did more of that from that. But And so... Um, so, but you know, uh, here at IMC, what I've seen happen here is we, we grew from just an evening sitting group that met once a week to what we have here um, is that people requested or expected that uh, whatever was going on in their life that was important, they wanted to be touched or, or be, you know, have some relationship to the Dharma or to their community. And um, so they wanted for their children. And, you know, children's programs, or they wanted to have women's circles, or they wanted to have affinity groups, or they wanted to have memorial services, or they wanted to have, 
um, you know, people were sick or they wanted baby blessings or they wanted, um, um, you know, the, you know, the, you know, it goes on and on and on um, and what people wanted. And some people got angry with me because we, we, we didn't uh, evolve quickly enough for them, uh, for what they wanted. I remember one person who said, I've been practicing now for a long time, many years before, and, um, and uh, we need to have some kind of program for senior students, some kind of training. And that was like, that was uh, 17 years ago when this person, I said, well, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I kind of, I was kind of clueless. Um, you know, you know, <laughs> so I didn't do anything, and um, and uh, and then slowly we evolved, and now we have all kinds of programs for senior students, and it became clear after a while how much this was needed and how useful it was. But um, and so that's kind of evolved, and for some people we evolved later than probably would have been nice. Um, and then we had uh, we have all kinds of people who get sick, and some people who are dying, and. And we get now we get because of audio dharma we get uh, emails from all over the world of people who are going through a crisis of one form or the other or another. And um, uh, there was I don't know if you remember, but some years ago there was a Dutch airplane that uh, crashed in northern Africa and everyone died. And I read about it in paper and or a newspaper back then or I don't know where I read about it. And I was touched and concerned, or whatever, but it was tragic. And then um, six months, a year later, we got an email from someone saying that um, I've been listening to your talks for many years, and um, my parents were in that crash. And you know, and so I, then I felt like I, I should call this person. So I called Holland and talked to the person, and, and um, because I felt like you know this was spiritual caregiving, you know. What we do here touches people, and um, and when we look at chaplaincy in the hospitals, and we look also at uh, communities like this, I think it's useful to um, expand out our understanding of what's happening in spiritual practice. When I'm in a narrow kind of Theravada and Dharma mode, I can get really narrow if I, you know, if you twist my arm. And uh, <laughs> the narrow Theravada path, and you know, there's a very clear, you know, stages of the path, and you develop vipassana and shamatha, and you do precepts, and and then you get rid of the hindrances, and you know, you're like, you know, it's very, you know, it's very specific and narrow, you know, what you're supposed to do, and you know, how's your concentration going, and give you concentration advice, how's your insight going, give insight advice, and and it's all great. Um, However, people come with a much wider range of needs than just get developing concentration. Traditionally, among the meditations, traditions of Theravada and Buddhism, and I, I suspect some of this happens in Zen and other, I've seen it happen in, 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 uh, in Tibetan Buddhist, Buddhist practitioners, this idea that everything, all your problems will be solved by meditation. Mm-hmm. And I've known people have had really big, serious, both psychological and ethical problems and um, and insisted that just I'm going to meditate to make it somehow all work out, and I'm not so confident that it always works that way. So the narrow scope uh, that the, sometimes the rhetoric of what we're about in Buddhism limits the scope of what people will engage in. But I think if we sometimes if we expand our understanding uh, uh, with a different kind of framework for what we we can do, it can be useful. And so, uh, in in chaplaincy, hospital chaplaincy and stuff, sometimes there's understanding that there's a set of four different domains of human life that chaplaincy is concerned with. Uh, one is that it's involved with um, reconci- reconciliation and healing. So people have ruptures in their social life, their community life, uh, maybe with their even ruptures within their own self. And so the, the, the real need they have is to heal that. And we know that some people, um, uh, sometimes if they're dying, uh, the, what they ask for the most is to, uh, please, someone, the chaplain, go find my daughter, my son, who I haven't talked to in 20 years. I'd like to, before I die, I'd like to have a meeting. So they need for reconciliation or some healing. And some people come to Buddhism because of that suffering. And that's the suffering that they're trying to address. Sometimes within a Buddhist community, because it's so important, 
the rupture happens here in the community itself. And so then the reconciliation, the healing, uh, needs to happen within the community itself. And and um, <clears throat> and there have been some major ruptures. Uh, in uh, Like right now, there's a major rupture in the insight meditation movement, in a sense. It's a, it's a fractured movement but already, but... Um, <coughs> Uh, you know, there was, uh, there was a teacher, Noah Levine, who uh, kind of was a variety of things happened to him, and he was uh, pushed out of his organization, and then his organization closed, no longer exists, and then he was t- his authorization to teach was taken away by Spirit Rock, um, and so his own he had a very large uh, follow, group of followers, and that within that community now there's splits, there's fracture between the people who were 100% supportive of Noah and those who kind of feel like can't support him have to go away. And, and so how do we care for them? And so I've, been, I've tried a little bit. To, I've been was invited in to try to care for that. And I feel that's part of my concern as well, this wider circles of who we are. So that's an example within the community, Buddhist community itself that there's a need for this reconciliation and healing. People have a profound need uh, to feel like they belong and uh, that they're part of something and they're they belong to the planet, they belong to nature, they belong to a community, they belong to their family, they belong to themselves. And the sense of belonging is very, very important for people. And, um, and uh, the sense of community and feeling connected, that human connection. And uh, they might need that more than they need to develop their concentration. And, uh, or they're developing concentration, that's what they think they're doing. And, uh, but in fact, as they're doing that, uh, they're actually working through a lot of the issues around belonging and not belonging and fear and inhibition and hurt that's gone on. And so, you know, they can say, yes, oh, oh, well, yeah, I got the first jhana, that's great. But that's not really great. What's great is that, that on the way to the first jhana, they healed their sense of not belonging that they had. And then uh, people have a strong need for, for a sense of, uh, of self-worth. Value of being valued, and some people, for all you know, as we know, for many reasons social reasons and personal reasons, familial reasons, all kinds of things can get the message they're not worth anything, that they're not important or have value. And so, um, to be able to feel a certain, certain sense of basic human value and importance, and that you count, that you're um, <clears throat> is, uh, I think, very, very important uh, as an antidote to feeling the opposite. And maybe in some brilliant way, there's a middle way where we no longer need to feel important or unimportant. And that's kind of, but that's kind of healing, that whole thing about feeling worthless. That's called, you know, feeling some sense of self-worth or worth. And that's, that's you know, and some people <clears throat> will come to a Buddhist community and, um, and uh, maybe the meditation is not that important for them because that's not really where the fundamental inner heart needs are but they have the need to, um, and they, have, they start volunteering a lot. And they help out in the community a lot. And in doing that, they feel like finally, they feel they have some value. And, and there's, there's come slowly a kind of inner psychological shift happens where they, they, uh, they can feel a sense of value and importance that they never felt before. Um, and uh, some people, you know, become Buddhist teachers you know, they wouldn't, maybe they don't even know it consciously, but uh, for that reason. And it's a, it's a great role to be in if you want to feel a sense of self-worth. You know, all these people look at you with big eyes. And, <laughs> you know, the people who like you will come up and say, that was great. And the people who didn't like you mostly go away. And you never hear, you never hear, about, you never hear about them. And so it's easy to be convinced, like everyone likes me because the only people who talk to me tell me how great I am. <laughs> And so, wow, you know, that's pretty good. And uh, so it may be unfortunate when that's the motivation, but it's kind of, these, these things can be unconscious, what people are working out also. And, um, and then uh, people uh, have a profound need for a sense of purpose and meaning. And, you know, I, I grew up in the Zen tradition where anything they say, you know, they pulled the rug from underneath any sense of meaning and purpose. But, you know, that was nice because it was, Still, there was a sense of a meta-purpose of why you do that, kind of. And uh, so, but what's the meaning? What's the purpose of life? It's, uh, a meaningless life is very hard for some people to live with. And a sense of finding meanings, finding a sense of purpose, what their life is about, is what they're searching for. 
And I've known plenty of people who come to Buddhism um, without a sense of purpose or meaning, and they found it in the practice. And sometimes once they found it, they sometimes would go and do something else, you know. Uh, you know, they found what they want to do. Or some people found it within the community itself. And so all those issues come into play uh, when there's a death, when there's sickness, when there's, you know, a baby's been born, or there's been a rupture in our society, like we had, when we had 9-11 happen, uh, you know, so many years ago now. Um, that was a big thing for a whole country, right? But uh, it was uh, also, people would look towards, pe- members of people who came to the sitting group, uh, they expected that this is the place they could go to process that. Um, they didn't, you know, they didn't go. They didn't go down the street to the local, you know, congregational church because it was a convenient church nearby. They wanted to have that kind of issue addressed in the in the religious community that was supposed to be somehow giving primary, fundamental meaning, belonging, connection, reconciliation, do something. And they had seen that Buddhism did that, or. At IMC, they thought saw it here. This is what they, and so, the role of the people, the leadership then is to meet that. And so, a few times over the over these decades, when we've had major social ruptures, we've had uh, impromptu meetings where we just let people know, and we've come here together, and then we've processed that. And were you there when we did nine eleven? No, 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 and. Um, Nadine was part of our group when we were in Palo Alto days. And that was back then. And um, so the pastoral needs of a, of a community. Uh, and so I, I haven't told too much what we do here at IMC, but I wanted to just um, kind of lay the ground and try to enrich it, en- enrich that world for you. That uh, it's, a, it's a very, you know, it's, it's a really rich or multifaceted uh, world because it's, it's, it's all of it, you know. It's uh, that's what a church is. If or you know, is that people invest into their church, into their religion, into their spirituality, one way or the other, their whole life. Um, the, you know, it's, they expect kind of a universal way in which it touches all parts of their life. And uh, so, how how does a community meet those needs, and and um, what are the different ways of doing that? So that's enough for, uh, as my long introduction. Um, rather, maybe Paul can do his long introduction. Short introduction. Short introduction. <laughs> mm-hmm. I hope you, you know, and then, but what I thought we would do is, um, after Paul, is maybe um, have uh, talk as a group about this topic, and some of you are part of Buddhist communities, and what your experiences are, or based on your experience, what kind of questions do you have for Paul and I about this, or for the group as a whole? And we can have a richer conversation as a group as a whole uh, on this important topic. Okay. Yes, actually. Can you keep that one? Yeah. Thinking and talking about these things, you know, one thing we have uh, we mentioned to each other is that that we're Buddhist converts, you know, that uh, for the most part, and 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 certainly, in some ways, whether we grew up Buddhist or not, if we became part of a Western Buddhist organization, we we were even so we were still moving away from what what we had, the tradition we'd been born in. And 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 I think just the same way, the Vipassana movement, the Insight movement, reflected it, the foundations that were in place within Thailand and Burma. The, the, the Zen traditions reflected, in, in to a large extent, what was the situation in Japan, and then to some degree also in Korea and in China. 
uh, although mostly Japan and then Korea, which was that it, it isn't simply a, uh, a retreat system. It also includes a residential system. And uh, so when the finder... And then the other thing is that, you know, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein, they, they went to Southeast Asia, they learned this tradition, and then they brought it back, and they deliberately uncoupled it from its cultural roots and its cultural milieu. You know, and uh, as as a way to, it's hopefully as as a skillful means to allow it to find itself in this culture. And and then in contrast, San Francisco Zen Center and several other Zen centers uh, were founded by someone who had come from Japan or Korea and and initiated it here. Um, Right now, I can't actually think of a Zen teacher who... Tr- oh, yeah, Jiu Kennet. There is one. Um, but even she um, attempted to take Zen. Well, she was the distinct in that she attempted immediately to create a Western context. And in our group, the, the teacher brought the fundamentals. And just as I was saying earlier, you, you bring the heritage... And then you let it find its expression in the context you're in. Uh, it, and, and so being, we do have resident, in the San Francisco Zen Centers, we have residential communities. And, and, and so well, the very same things that Gil was mentioning, you know, that people want to heal, they want to find a purpose for life, they... they they want to have a sense of belonging. Yes, all those are functioning. But the folks are there all the time. And and then the other feature is the very same people who are there to do their meditation practice and their self-development are also helping to create the environment and sustain the environment of the center. Um, And and that sets up a whole sort of social ecosystem. Then you you need to attend to uh, a variety of needs. You you need to feed them, you need to house them. And and, and so it it diversifies and, and makes more complicated the the infrastructure needs of what you're doing, which in the Zen world uh, is not a problem because when you're a Theravadan monk, you're prohibited from working. But in in the Zen world, starting with Bajan about the eighth century or so, um, work became another form of practice. You know. Uh, so, so something shifted in, in how it was thought about. And, and that might all seem a little abstract, but when you're in those Zen communities, you can really see the impact of all that yeah. and, and the challenges. And then the other thing was that we inherited in San Francisco Zen Center, we inherited, our teacher was Japanese, so we, we inherited not only the practices and the ethos of the practices, the precepts of them, but we also inherited the liturgy. And, and, and so, you know, Gil was saying, well, it's spirit rock when these, um, these transition times in people's lives. You know, initially, the most significant one is when people die, it, it seems to me, and I think there's some validation for it, that there's a strong impulse when someone dies that we mark it in some way. You know, there's, there's a, a need within us to do that. And so, since we'd inherited the liturgy, we had a way to do it. 
and um, and then we had, even though it was somewhat created within our center, we had a way to do weddings, you know, and then we had a way to do um, births, and then we added a way to do coming of age. <laughs> you know, we just kept building out on the core. And I remember there was a time when, when people would come and say, well, I'm actually a Vipassana practitioner, but uh, we don't have um, a ceremony for this. Can, we, can I do a ceremony here? It's interesting, it doesn't happen very often now at all. So the San Francisco Zen Center has developed a, um, an extended liturgy, you know, we have baby namings. Um, we have coming of age. Uh, we have, uh, as I say, we have weddings. We have funerals. We have memorials. Um, then we have different kinds of ordination, different levels of ordination. We have lay ordination. We have priest ordination. We have um, a ceremony process you go through before you become a teacher. Then we have a, a ceremony process you go through when you have finished your trainee teacher apprenticeship, and then you're a fully qualified teacher. So the, the, it's quite different in that all of those then we also have a more formal way that, you know, in the, in the insight tradition, when you're on retreat, you'll meet with the teacher. And it's not so clear, and, you know, maybe Gil will speak to this, beyond retreat, do you have connection with the teacher or not? Well, when you're, when you're in residence, uh, it's easy to have the, the connection. You, you know, you're in the same locality and your um, daily schedules are, are somewhat compatible for that. It's also expected, right? And it's expected, yes. Which is almost the same as required. <laughs> <laughs> in the Zen world, yeah. We like resp- ins- res- <laughs> expected. <laughs> but there's legitimacy to say it's required. Um, and the, adva- the, advantage of, the advantage of that is just built into the system. Whereas, I guess you're saying, in the inside movement, it's not so clear. What do we, what do, we do here? Yeah. yeah, I'm not even sure if you, if you called up a teacher in the inside system and said, I'd like to meet with you, whether or not they'd be available for it. Um, so it's it's a different background, and, and then to pick up on what, and, and then interestingly, those ceremonies um, like we didn't inherit from our founder or from the Japanese tradition a baby naming ceremony. They didn't have such a thing, so we made up our own. The uh, the coming-of-age ceremony we actually took from Judaism. <laughs> and then we made, we crafted it into kind of like a Buddhist version of bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, you know, if you know those terms. They're coming-of-age ceremonies. Um, we, we crafted our own uh, wedding ceremony. One of the interesting things about most of our ceremonies, except the coming of age and the birth. They have the what's called the Bodhisattva precepts as a principal part of them. And then that e- even when we do a funeral, if the person didn't receive the precepts when they were alive, they posthumously received the precepts. Um, So, and just as I was saying earlier, you know that we we adopted the uh, the Metta Sutta, 
albeit our own version. Uh, we, we, we both adopted ceremonies and we adapted them to our current situation. And then there's a, what I think of as a lovely feature to some of that is that often um, we don't agree in advance. Let's all do it this way. We start doing things and then we ask each other, well, how do you do that? And how do you do it? And, and then we discover. Then we, um, what you might call, uh, sort of create a standard. Like we do it certain ways, and then we create a standard. And what do you do when you're, when you're doing a baby naming ceremony? And right now we don't have a standard for that, so we do it a variety of ways. And, and there's, there's a sense of trusting that. You know? Like in, in the Zen notion, when someone's a qualified teacher, they have the empowerment to do things as a way that seems appropriate to them. So we do that, and then we talk to each other and decide if we're going to standardize it. And some things we don't, and some things we do. Um, One notable thing to me is that uh, in most of Asia, maybe all of Asia, I don't know, Buddhist practice is, to a large extent, a patriarchy. But when our finder came, uh, it it was, you you know, the 60s. Uh, There was a nascent equality between the genders. uh, And that immediately translated into... uh, the people who got ordained, we, we didn't, we didn't have a gender distinction. I mean, so both men and women got ordained. Um, we didn't have um, a, we did we didn't have monks. The way we think about our system is when you. Um, when you're in the monastery, whether you're ordained or not, you're a monk. And, and we use that as a non-gender, we relate to that as a non-gender term. That can be a- any gender. Um, but we do have priests. And, and a priest is an identity. And this is a whole other kind of conversation. If you have questions, we can try to answer them. But... In, in contrast to the monks and nuns of Asia, we have priests and they don't follow the same set of rules and they're not necessarily celibate. It, it's, it's, the option of being celibate is there, but the precept is don't misuse sexuality. So it doesn't say be celibate. Um, And the other thing that has evolved in our Sangha is we have what, a lot of what we call affiliate uh, groups or affinity groups, excuse me, affinity groups. We have a recovery group. We have uh, a queer Dharma group. We have an under-40s group. Um, We have a Spanish-speaking group. Um, can you think of any other skill? Well, I said then the queer Dharma group, yeah, would cover that. Which one? People of color group, yes. Um, I remember counting it once, and we had ten different groups. Um, so there there are distinct benefits to being having a residential community you know the connection the support 
the, the, the letting the ethos of practice uh, cover all of your life. You know, it's not just when you're in Sashin or on retreat, but you, you're, you, you have, like we have scheduled meditation sessions every day. And when you live in the temple or the center, um, you're expected to attend them. Um, so there's a lot of benefits. And then some of the deficits are that uh, the non-residential community um, can feel excluded. You know, it, it's like it sets up a notion that there's a hierarchy. You know, that if if you don't live in the center, you're not as serious a practitioner or committed a practitioner as someone who does. Um, there's an intimacy that grows with living together. That if you come as an outsider, um, you feel a little excluded. So, and and then in terms of pastoral care, there is a challenge for all of our groups, and that is um, we 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 didn't you know even though our our founder came from. a Zen temple in Japan that had a, an extended lay community. They, and they had within that a kind of support system. But, but somehow that didn't translate over, and maybe it's just because it's a different society. It isn't as cohesive. Like San Francisco, the Bay Area, is a more transient society. People don't know each other you know, in their neighborhoods. Like I grew up in Ireland and the the neighborhood was sort of a stable entity and you knew most of the people in your neighborhood and it was just when someone needed something or was going through something difficult in their life or someone in their family died, as, as just a neighbor, you attended to their needs, you attended to their ceremonies and things. So one of the characteristics of of the large groups like this one and San Francisco's Zen Center and Spirit Rock, as Gil was saying, that um, that that network of connection to the extended Sangha and in the Zen world who are not in residence, um, it's a little bit hit and miss, or it's more than a little bit hit and miss, you know. Gil was using the example of someone who came to hear the talks uh, but didn't actually do much else. And they may feel very connected. But when they stopped, I remember someone stopped coming to city center. And then after two months they came back and they were very hurt that I hadn't called them and said, how come you're not coming? You know? And actually she'd had a hip replacement and had been bedridden for a while and needed help. And we had no way of knowing that was the case. And, you know, as far as I was concerned, she could have been in the Bahamas for two months, you know? <laughs> Just all I knew was that she wasn't at Saturday morning lecture. Um, and so our pastoral care, outside of residency, at city center, to my mind, is quite weak. We don't have. Uh, I think Gil can speak to this. I think he's done a more concerted effort here. Like many people have taken, uh, like Dylan's a resident and he's taken this course and uh, many people over the years have taken it and then engaged it in whatever way they want to engage it. 
Some of them have become professional chaplains. Um, some of them have just let it be a personal enrichment, you know, and, and they don't engage as a, a chaplain. And some people teach in the prisons. We have a prison program. We have um, a homeless program. We we feed homeless people. We we make the food and bring it. Uh, we just distribute it on the streets. Uh, those are. Um, we participate in interfaith programs. There's there's a homeless advocacy program. We we're we're part of religious witness to homelessness. Um, there's other collaborative homeless programs where different communities take turns in providing uh, breakfast or lunch in a soup kitchen. Um, so we have those things. But th- this wider sangha of people who come sometimes regularly, sometimes intermittently, it, we, we don't have such a strong connection to them. Um, it, it's, th- there's no way, like you can't go into our office and say, well, I'm having a hip replacement and I would like someone to come and visit me every week. No? And it's interesting because at times we've tried to pick that up, you know, and build that into the system. But it hasn't, as of yet, taken hold. Uh, Not to say that there isn't the organic where where someone is, who's a non-resident, is well known to the community, so when something happens to them, we respond. But it's, it's... it's more informal than than part of a structured system. Um, then maybe the last thing I'd like to mention is the the ordination process. Where I was saying there there is an initial process, which which we call um, jukai, which means precepts and. We take the 16 bodhisattva precepts and, and almost everyone does that or, or who's going to stay in, in the system. Uh, and then from there, if you wish, you, you would ordain as a priest. And usually there's a, there's a gap between the two of those You'd have been practicing about five years. And then about five years later, you would do this other, uh, it's called being a shuso. You you take on a role for a period of time. And then you become sort of, you you become a teacher in in a learning role. You're both a teacher and learning to be a teacher. Zen is very into learning by doing. <laughs> it's an apprenticeship. It's not an academic study. And then after about another ten years, you would be a fully qualified teacher. So, that's my thoughts for now. Do you have anything you want to add, Kim? No. That's great. Okay. And um, we have about uh, 14 minutes before we should stop for lunch. And, uh, I'd like, I'd like us to stop for lunch at 12 because we have this guest teacher, uh, chaplain, coming to speak in, at 1 o'clock so we can start on time with her. And um, and in case this is a fertile or in, very interesting topic, uh, we, we could maybe pick it up again in, in the late afternoon and come back to it. And um, But I would like to suggest that, uh, that uh, a little bit hope that this was provocative to you in some ways. Some of you are part of communities, uh, you know, like San Francisco Zen Center or IMC. Some of you are, are part of more informal groups that don't have that kind of, you know, centri- you know, like a building and things like that. And some of you are outside of all that, but 
you're looking from outside and wondering what your relationship to it is, what you know, what what to do. And um, so, uh, what I propose you do is uh, to uh, to change the dynamics here a little bit. Is to form groups of four and go around in the ten minutes we have and um, and say, what was evoked for you? What was inspired for you? Or what was d- depressing for you and discouraging for you? Because this can evoke many different things um, in uh, your relationship to kind of a Buddhist community. But about uh, pastoral care in a Buddhist community, and uh, uh, how does that sound as a, as a suggestion where we spend these next 10 minutes? And then other questions from Paul and I maybe be saved for the afternoon to, to explore it some more. So why don't you form groups of about four and then... Uh, Again, probably don't have a, you know, long, each person shouldn't have a long time to talk about everything you could about this topic because it's, say, you know, maybe say one thing, like one point, and then go around the circle and make one point so you can more, hear more, more voices and everyone has a chance in the 10 minutes. So, form groups of four. The energy in the room, are you guys talking, this seemed like you were engaged in the conversation. It felt, it felt right. I hope, I hope that was the case. And um, while you were having your conversation about pastoral care in the Sangha, Paul and I were doing the same <laughs> about caring for particular people and how we do this and how do we think creatively. And with, um, because sometimes that's what's required is creative thinking. Um, so um, would you like to have some time in the afternoon to pick up this topic as a group and maybe have questions of Paul and I, explore some of this, more issues around this and... Is that something that is of interest or is it exhausted now? Still interested. Still interested? Okay. So why don't we do our lunch and then um, in an hour we'll have Melissa Thompson. She might come and join us for lunch, but uh, she'll come and do her presentation. Yes? Is it possible to have a table outside like we did when we first Absolutely. It's, it's warm enough. Yeah, just carry it outside in the chairs. And, uh, and uh, Jennifer's not here she asked if there would be a volunteer who would uh, collect the, 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 her essays for her and mail it to her. Maybe one of her re- uh, writers or one of the, anybody at all. Anybody like to collect them? So Susan will collect. So if, you're, if Jennifer is a reader for your essays, uh, Dharma Story, and Dharma, uh, give them to Susan and Susan will mail it to Jennifer. Thank you. <laughs>